everyone and welcome to our gem pursuit i'm your host matthew weldon and i'm here with my co-host today elise ketcher hello elise hi everyone this is part two of our jewelry through the ages expedition all about the influential and infinitely interesting historical period that we like to call the victorian era elise what's in today's episode we're discussing the wonderful and weird Victorian period. We're touching on some macabre things with morning jewellery, but we're also talking about the romantic life of a very a couple that's very much in love. Sounds interesting and lots to get through. So looking forward to getting this one started. Victorian period was a very long period a lot like the Georgian periods obviously the Edwardian period is next which is much shorter but it went from 1837 to about 1901 obviously the exact dates are the dates that Victoria was on the throne but sometimes with these periods there's a couple of years before and a couple of years after that still captures the style of the period and the style of the the jewelry and um, what a fascinating period Lots going on. What were the main events in the Victorian period that stand out to you, Elise? Well, first off, we see the rise to the throne of a very, very young queen. So she comes to the throne at age 18 in 1837. And she's still very much trying to gain her own um, political momentum. She has been kept basically away from the world for the majority of her life and almost been kept like a paper doll in a home. She has a very, very limited knowledge of how to interact with others, but has a vast knowledge um, according to books and history. So a very young queen comes to the throne and we start to see a little bit of uh of the political climate at the time as people are trying to move her this way and that way. And that's kind of the beginning of the era before she gets married. Mm, yes. And I suppose we should also mention that this period, especially in kind of um, Ireland, the UK and, and the West is called the Victorian period because almost uh, I think a quarter of the world was under the auspices of the British empire at the time, but it did have other uh, exactly. names in other countries, for example, in Spain, it was called the Isabellino and Alfonsino periods. France, I mean, it was the, sec, uh, the Second French Republic. There was there was lots of different, depending where you are, in Russia it would be called the Tsarist era. And then depending on which Tsar was it, they would call it, you know, after that particular Tsar. But just for the purposes of, and particularly with jewellery, because a lot of this jewellery was made uh, in the Victorian era. And um, we will proceed with, with that terminology, but... Uh, but yeah, but no, keeping, totally it, keeping in mind that we are talking about the whole world during that period and we understand that there are other cultures and other things going on as well. Mm. And it's interesting what you said about the the, pod, the political landscape when Victoria came to the throne. And, but it was also a vastly different landscape to the Georgian period. So the Georgian period was lots of wars, the wars in the Americas, you know, between the European powers were you know the the english the french the dutch the germans uh belgians belgians as well in, in africa as well it really marked the georgian period was the theme of war however it was quite different in the victorian period wasn't it definitely so especially with uh, queen victoria she marries quite um quite early on and due to her kind of marriage we start to see a, a more of a unification between her and her husband prince albert kind of taking charge of running things together as like a team and it's seen more as a romantic story as well. And people kind of get behind them as well. So it becomes a time of peace and also a time of prosperity. And, you know, we also see the introduction of romantic love. So people see them as a romantic couple as well. So not only that, but we see this, this kind of prosperous time in England as well. Um, and then because of that uh, prosperous in the outlying colonies that belong to, the, to England as well. Um, so 
the early on we see things like the first postage stamp is introduced in like 1840 uh, where people are able to post letters and in the first year 70 million letters were actually sent wow. out and then it triples the next year so you see this kind of um, this advancement is very fast it's quick uh, and then we see other things like the steam engine then comes in as well and we see people moving from place to place a lot easier and quicker and freer again this is you know kind of freedoms that weren't afforded in the past to everybody it's but very, start to move forward quite quickly like when you think of letters it's because obviously we've grown up with them and they were already so well ingrained in our culture before that you kind of just take it for granted but the idea that you could communicate with someone on the other side of the world relatively quickly obviously I, it wasn't probably as quick as letters will get sent today but if you wanted to talk to someone on the other side of the world before a letter you just couldn't do it really i mean there was you know telegrams not, not, a, that, not, not easily no not easily at all um and this is what this period kind of ushers in it ushers in something very very different a middle class is established through this particular period which is great because we see influxes of other things as well not only the the queen and her consort prince albert um, their life but we start to see things like um, the introduction of uh, vaccinations. Uh, I know that we touched on that a little bit before as well um, in the Georgian period, but it actually became a legal requirement in 1853 um, under the Vaccination Act that all children had to be vaccinated against smallpox. Now, this is the first time we see that it's actually a legal requirement. So children have to be. Sounds might be like it might be familiar. <laughs> it yeah. does. It yeah. does. This is why I bring it up because it's so relevant today that we see like things that are mirrored from the past in today's uh, society where we're still talking about things that, you know, that would have troubled the time period. And smallpox was definitely one of those things that people were looking at as a, as a disease that was was going to take their loved ones away so it became a um, legal requirement for children to have this um, and their parents could go to jail if they didn't have the immunization or they could also receive large fines as well so that's 1853 of course during um, that time we also see something really devastating happen in terms of poverty in ireland of course you're referring to the potato famine and it's although that happened in ireland i think the consequences of it are seen clearly all around the world today the population of ireland that time was about 8.2 million before the potato famine it dropped to roughly about 4 million kind of estimates between four to four and a half million but those people uh, obviously a lot of people died but most of them actually immigrated so a lot went to the United States, a lot went to England, a lot went to Argentina, but Australia, New Zealand, all over the world. So the Irish diaspora today is so vast because you think of 4 million people who uh, the population decreased by 4 million. Most of those would have immigrated. Uh, and then now we're probably, you know, four or five generations beyond that. Uh, that's a vast, vast number of Irish descent people in every corner of the world. And that can, a lot of that can be traced back to, to the potato famine, which was more or less, uh, and I, I, we've been warned by our producer to not make this a podcast <laughs> about the potato famine, but but uh, but it's it, uh, the potato crop failed. Uh, there was no food. Uh, I think it's so important, though, to remember this, like, um, especially since we are an island, we have to honor the history of Ireland. And this is a huge part of what happened during the Victorian period here in Ireland is that over 1 million people died of starvation. Now, on the Liffey, there is this really uh, wonderful, um, well, I wouldn't say, I'd say haunting sculpture that was created to kind of commemorate those who passed away. And it really looks like stick figures and they're holding on to their family members. It's quite 
it's quite, like I said, haunting statute. And it is something that we, you know, have to touch on because it's a part of Irish history. Um, and also we're talking about poverty during the Victorian period. It wasn't all glamour. There was, um, you know, not only in Ireland, but in other parts of the world as well. We're talking about uh, a lot of uh, children, child labour. We're talking about slums and places where things weren't um, up to the standard of living that they are today. So, you know, there is this kind of disparity between the the two classes, but it does kind of become a lot more... um, It diminishes quite a lot. Once we get into the kind of end of the Victorian period, uh, we start to see things change quite dramatically from factory work and things like that, especially the building of cities, which all happened during the Victorian period. So it's such a vast period. Lastly, I want to kind of touch on the, the a few different things that also happened in the Victorian period, just to kind of like um, get them in there. We know that Charles Darwin also in 1859 publishes the evolution, the origin of species, sorry. Um, and this talks about the evolution of mankind, you know, quite scandalous at the time because it moves away from what uh, religion, uh, organized religion is kind of always told us about our origins so it comes up with another hypothesis and i think another small thing to point out that happened in the victorian era so as you mentioned about the uh you know steam ships and things allowed people to travel but from a jewelry perspective the development of a steam driven brooting machine and uh happened towards the end of it about 1874 and 1876 two different uh, machines of these brooting machines and that allows, it basically uses two diamonds to polish each other, which allowed for the first true round stones, um, which you, which now account for well over 95% of diamonds polished today are round stones. And that happened in about 1874, 1876. And then 1891, the first electrical bruting machine was made. And then in about 1900, you get the first motorized diamond saw. And this is at the very end of the Victorian period, but with the this motorized diamond saw and these electrical brooding machines, not to mention an influx of new rough uh, diamond material from South Africa, it led to the a great period for jewellery in the Victorian period. The jewellery of the Victorian era, for me at least, is... It, I, I actually, I really do love it. Like, the Georgian era is beautiful handmade stuff, but I suppose... Uh, just from a day-to-day thing, it is so rare. You don't handle it as much. It's more when you get something in from the Georgian period, it's uh, it's almost more of a surprise to look at it. But our day-to-day operate, uh, the stuff we do from day-to-day is looking and evaluating Victorian, Edwardian, and later jewellery. And Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. And I think that's why we love because we see so much variety in it and different stones different styles but there were a lot of different styles in victorian jewelry wasn't there there was and i love how you've you've kind of like touched on the georgian period because uh prior to um prior to the the finding of diamonds in south africa in 1867 we we only have um two depleting resources one is india and the the major one during the the early victorian period is brazil um but they're depleting so we don't have a huge influx of diamonds um coming into anywhere at that particular time so a lot of the georgian pieces are, are taken apart passed down fam- to family members and they're reset in Victorian designs. This is why we we do see a lot of Victorian pieces and we don't see a lot of the Georgian pieces. Very early on as well, like I said, we're following the life the lifespan of Queen Victoria and her time on the throne. She comes onto the throne as such a young, young queen. That's really quite incredible. It is like 18 years old to be given that kind of responsibility. And like you said, she, you know, she's ruling a quarter of the world and really hasn't been anywhere or experienced anything and has to, you know, go to her advisors. 
Um, she's the one who kind of sets the scene of what is being worn during this period. And of course, she's 18 years old. She's courting her um, cousin, Prince Albert at the time. And it becomes very much a romantic era. So we see the uses of natural motifs, flowers, sparrows, lovebirds, um, all of this. Serpents, very important. Yeah, Yeah. all of this kind of thing during the early Victorian period. And I suppose as an overview of it, then it goes into the grand period and then finally the ascetic period. Romantic period, Julie, I think is very interesting and it is quite broad, but yeah, very based on a lot of natural motifs and Victoria's engagement ring as we mentioned before was um, a serpent ring with an emerald and a diamond and we in the emerald podcast in season two we we discussed that in a lot of detail and you can definitely listen to that if you want some more information but following that you'll see a lot of serpent necklaces serpent bracelets serpent uh, rings and that all came from that engagement ring now, that was in the kind of earlier Victorian period. Now, they went on to later, and even today, if you look at Bulgari, uh, that's serpenti yeah. <laughs> jewellery. Yeah. That's that's all from this period. It you know? is. It's a nod. It's a nod to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, for sure. A lot of people would say, oh, no, it's because of the ancient Egyptians, because the ancient Egyptians were the ones who first used snakes. But really, those who brought the serpent jewellery back to the forefront was this particular couple. Now, you might think, like, why would you use a serpent? What? Why would you use a serpent as your engagement ring? Well, the coils of the serpent is supposed to represent undying love and eternity. And so this is what it meant to them. And like I said, this is the first kind of royal couple who was seen as a romantic couple. So she wrote very fondly of of her husband. Um, And we follow also the gifts and the styles that were given to her by her husband through this period. We also see the use of colored gemstones a lot in the early um, Victorian period, bright and colorful gemstones because of the new kind of gowns that were coming out so prior to the victorian Color period was important, yeah. yeah and prior to the victorian period we don't see synthetic dyes being used on gowns it was all natural colors in the georgian period but the introduction of um synthetic dyes meant bright gowns so we start to see very very bright coloration in the clothing that women are wearing and to kind of embellish that with jewels they a lot of colored gemstones were used so amethysts that you can see today in rivieres from the victorian period were a huge one during the romantic period And we also see a lot of sapphires being used. They were thought to represent marital bliss. So they were used a lot in in marriage ceremonies. And then, of course, flowers um, were used as well. Uh, Fresh flowers in the hair and also motifs on jewellery. Uh, and then, of course, we move into the mid-Victorian, which is talking more about kind of like the Etruscan styles. And and all through that time, as we as we mentioned in the first part of our podcast, there's a growing middle class. Mm-hmm. And whereas before jewellery was reserved for only the elite, there was a growing middle class kind of people, you know, shopkeepers, you know, people who had professions. But an interesting part of the jewellery that changed in the Victorian period is that in Georgian period, it was all 18 karat gold or silver. Mm-hmm. And silver would have been, you know, kind of probably cheaper jewellery and then gold for the fine things. But what they did is they allowed 9 carats, 14 carats, 12 carats. don't know why I went in that particular order, but it's... <laughs> it's uh, so they allowed a lower purity of gold to be used. And what that meant is that a lot more people in the middle classes could now afford diamond and ruby set jewellery. Maybe it was set in 9 carat, maybe it was set in 14 carat, where 18 or 21 carat maybe is. Some Georgian stuff had very high purity as well, which just made it prohibitively expensive. So there was a, a much, much bigger market for the jewellery. And you get into the grand period, um, the style changes, Prince Albert dies, and you know the mor- mourning period kind of begins then. 
That was that was a very that was a very blunt way to say that, Matthew. Well, he did. <laughs> Prince Albert dies. He passed. He passed away. Yeah, it was so long ago. We yeah, but let me just tell you, Queen Victoria was never over it. No, she it plunged her Ten into years? She, more a, than way more was it? until the end of her death. Until no. uh, her death. Till her death in 1901. So he dies in 1861 and she goes into a period of mourning from 1861 until her death in 1901. So she never stops wearing black and um, she only then from then on out wears mourning jewellery. So we have the mourning jewellery, which obviously is is different. We're talking about black enamels, gold, uh, seed pearls. But in addition to that, the grand period, the jewellery was quite big it's it's in the name so i think the fashion with hair you kind of have your hair quite large and quite down so you'd need these enormous earrings to be seen uh, and looking around in the shop actually we have quite a selection of victorian earrings and we have some quite big ones and i in my before i did some more research i kind of attributed those to kind of 18 80, 18 90 but i actually think they're earlier now because just with the styles they're they're quite long and then you get into the later victorian the ascetic period um, which is kind of 1890s, late 1880s, 1890s, and the hair starts to be worn up and the earrings get smaller because you can because you can see them. We we actually posted on our Instagram last night, you know, anyone had any questions about Victorian jewellery? And the, the thing that kept coming back was actually the morning jewellery. People seem to have a big fascination to it. And I can understand it because it's quite interesting. It is, it is uh, macabre, you know, people, people today see it as something that's quite interesting that people would look at these you know look at death in this kind of way like the Um, concept of wearing a ring to remember someone who's passed away it it just doesn't make sense i don't think to until you've researched it why and the how Um, and a lot of these pieces you actually used uh, a lock of hair from the deceased as well so yeah, and hair art is something that's quite celebrated during this period and previous periods as well. It falls out of fashion after this particular period. I think it has a lot to do with um, photographs. We see the uh, photographs become more readily available to people once we get into the Edwardian period. So hair kind of falls out of the picture. Now I can understand this a little bit because today we are such a visual, we're a visual society. We all look at things like Instagram or um, Pinterest to kind of formulate ideas and concepts, um, but also just to see what's going on in fashion and everyday life. But we have to remember that photographs weren't something that were readily available during these periods. So you can imagine losing your loved one and not having anything from them, not even a picture of them, would be quite devastating. So this kind of changes your view a little bit on mourning jewellery because it's a part of the person who is gone that reminds you of them, even Mm. though you don't have a picture Really, human behavior hasn't changed at all. It's just the medium in which we do it. Correct. So it's a morning, whereas now we'll have a photo album. Yeah. This was a morning piece. It, it reminded you of that person. Maybe you had a miniature painting of them. Often miniature paintings were given to someone who'd be traveling away if you were leaving on a long voyage or something like that. And that's just like sending someone a, a, an image or a selfie or whatever. It's, yeah. Uh, it's just the medium. It's... People so, don't change, really. <laughs> no, we don't. We yeah. don't. And that's the, that's the whole point of it. It's always about kind of understanding from a different point of view, this kind of perspective. And, you know, we the art of mourning during these periods was very different to what we have today. There was a mourning period. There was a time that you actually showed grief and were allowed to be left alone. Whereas today, you know, our government doesn't go, okay, you can go on leave for a year and wear black for a year when your loved one passes away but they say okay you can have like a week and then you're expected to act normally so you know it's very very different the way that the that death was viewed in these periods um we've also been asked on instagram what is the equivalent to morning jewelry today 
and it, or if there is anything that we would have as morning jewelry today. And I would say that a locket is something that has actually moved throughout the ages as a piece that you would consider kind of a morning jewelry piece because it, or a, a remembrance piece where you would put someone that you loved that you want to keep close to your heart. And that would be the locket, which has never fallen but, out of fashion. And like, just like the locket, there was this thing in Ireland there in like the seventies and eighties where, yeah, and even today, someone asked about this recently where you'd get like a, a gold representation of someone's face like and wear it on a chain yes and we see, i see these all the time in like you know they're normally for sale now at this stage but i don't know if that's actually in global jewelry or is it just a, it's just just a thing we do here is it uh i don't know I, i've seen it i've seen it in ireland quite a bit but um like it's a it's like a gold head-shaped yes coin almost that kind of size and it looks just like the yeah it's person. like kind of like sprayed into it almost or like um laser etched laser, almost. yeah laser etched into a into a i think coin. i think it's done by hand though maybe is it the old ones oh, i think probably it, were the the new one they've done like by a computer computer now yeah. yeah so that's a grand period and then we move into the late victorian um so there was a real abundance great pot prosperity uh, the Industrial Revolution mass-produced items. Now, jewelry was handmade most of the time in the Grand Period, but in terms of all other items, a lot of things were mass-produced then. Like, there were mills, there were all these type of things. But the ascetic um, period, uh, or late Victorian period, this was really a backlash to the abundance. And there's a couple of aspects to this I like. One of my favourite types of jewelry actually happened in this period, which is arts and crafts jewellery. I think that's very cool. And what, what that is, it it looks... Um, it looks... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. It looks handmade. Like, it's very... It's obviously... It's very well made, but you can see that it's... The metal is worked by hand, beaten by hand. The gemstones... We, we have a topaz, an aquamarine brooch from this period. Of the, it's the arts and crafts period. And uh, in late, in, within the aesthetic period, the arts and crafts movement, should I say, within the aesthetic period... And this brooch, there's two topazes at the bottom of the aqua. And they are like completely different shapes. But they're like round, but one's round, one's kind of more oval. But that's what they wanted, this kind of handmade, authentic, earthy feel to it. Which I kind of feel like there's an, that theme at the moment. Like people like, at the moment, people like more the different rustic. gems. Rustic gems. Like that's why... Black diamonds are more popular at the moment and grey diamonds. Some people call them salt and pepper. You know, I've seen different companies branding them different ways. I mean, essentially these are non-gem quality stones, but they do have an earthy feel to them. Even rough diamonds, unpolished diamonds. You can see them being set into jewellery. But this ascetic period, with a backlash to the abundance of the grand period, um, the jewellery got smaller. So, you know, hair was being wore up and the earrings were kind of stud earrings or small drops exactly what you say it's all very petite once we go into this kind of um this aesthetic period so you know the bar brooches aren't so wide and elaborate and we don't have you know something as large as you can get with as little amount of gold as you can use as possible like you see in the grand period where you see you know the etruscan styles where they're trying to you know put grape vines and things like that onto onto brooches and things like that we start to see bar brooches with a very small motif on it so you can definitely see the difference but what are your main jewelry tips from knowing each of the periods trade tips and insights into the victorian period well obviously it's such a long period as well so you know there could be different trade tips and for the different periods but the one thing i'd say that really stands out to me about victorian jewelry is uh, sometimes you might look at it and think god there's a an unusual collection of stones or there's a certain engraving there's a certain design of a certain flower or a certain motif and what i would say to you is that in victorian jewelry all of these little things the motifs the stones they often have a secret or a hidden meaning. And that secret and that hidden meaning is often very important to the value of the piece. Um, I love this I mean, about Victorian jewellery. Yeah, it's, they were, as you said, as you mentioned, this was a romantic 
error. And a lot of these were hidden love messages um, to the, the receiver. Uh, you, you'll often see in Victorian jewellery, like a, a stone that had a ruby, an emerald, a garnet, an amethyst, a ruby and a diamond in that order. And if you spell out the first letter, it's regard, uh, our dearest diamond, emerald, amethyst, ruby, emerald, sapphire, topaz. Yeah. So you'll see these stones maybe in an eternity ring or in a cluster of an earring. And that was dearest, my dearest. And um, so people come into the shop sometimes and they say, oh, can I have those earrings are very pretty, very colorful. Can I have a look? And I say, oh, the dearest earrings. And uh, they're like, what? I was like, no, no, not the dearest as in the most expensive, but just as <laughs> in the, as in the, they spell Victorian pair that spell out dearest. Um, and I think, as you mentioned, you see a lot of engraving in the bands of rings. And again, they had specific meanings as well. Certain flowers meant certain things. Uh, and so the gemstones, sapphire meant marital bliss and other gemstones had different meanings as well. So when you're looking at Victorian jewelry, just bear in mind, it yeah. might mean something. Um, I love, I really, really love that you brought out the the hidden romanticism of the sim, symbolic um, motifs that we use during this period. My favorite is, uh, I'm going to touch on yours, is the fact that there is a whole language of flowers in the Victorian period. So often you'll see on the wedding bands of this period, you'll see ivy leaves. Um, and those actually represent fidelity. So a lot of people are like, oh, I really just want a, one of the, the kind of old vintage bands or vintage style bands that have like the leaves on it. Well, it actually has a lot of meaning. It's, yeah. you know, it does represent fidelity between a marriage. And then you have things like the orange blossom, which is something that Queen Victoria actually wore in her hair on the day of her wedding instead of a, of a crown or a tiara. She wore orange blossoms because orange blossoms represented purity and also uh, fertility. So, you know, for her to be able to continue her posterity. And that she did. And she did with nine children. But, you know, these hidden messages within the within the Victorian period are so, what makes it so sweet? Like the sim- symbolic meaning and the story behind these pieces what people love additionally my tip for this period would be in terms of uh morning jewelry is that you have two different types of um what is called morning or morning jewelry from the victorian period and then the earlier kind of morning jewelry which is actually called memento mori jewelry and they often get mixed up and so quickly my trade tip is if it has skulls or bones or um, coffins and it doesn't have a name of a person on it, but maybe initials or a saying on it. Um, this is most likely a memento mori piece, which is earlier than the Victorian period. And then the later pieces, which are Victorian pieces, will have motifs like the urn a weeping woman on a on a tomb or a a weeping willow tree or birds uh, of this kind of nature and that makes it more of a that makes it a a memorial piece or a um a morning jewelry piece so it's a very easy to get the two mixed up but my trade tip is just look at the motifs you can usually tell um through those motifs whether or not it is a earlier piece or whether it is a morning piece from the victorian period two similar things but an important distinction to make definitely yes What I love about the Victorian period and in this episode of the podcast, rather than the Georgian one, which I did thoroughly enjoy and found very interesting as well, is that this particular uh, one, it's kind of much more relatable to today. Obviously, you can't uh, you can't get to the Victorian period without having the Georgian period, but you can more plainly see, I think, the effects of the Victorian period today. And when we talk about icons and Victorian style icons and jewellery and fashion icons. A lot of what they did, you'll still see around today. So who have you selected uh, for your icon this week? And I hope it's not the same one that I picked. (laughs) I have chosen 
Queen Victoria. Oh, damn it. <laughs> no, I did pick her. <laughs> no, the reason why I choose her is because I have followed this story many, many, many times. And, and, you know, you can watch the young Victoria. There's also a full series on Queen Victoria's reign as well. And she was such an avid journal keeper that we have a lot of what was going on the period in her own words, but her styling was something that really changed the face of jewelry for women. Now, Matthew and I were talking a little bit about this beforehand, but um, the Victorian period is the first period where women actually wear more jewellery than men. And I really believe this is because of Queen Victoria. Now, as I said, she's a, an avid journal keeper. And one of the things that she talks about is actually her wedding day. Now, a lot of you won't, won't know, but previous to Queen Victoria, we never wore really wore white wedding dresses. Um, we usually wore colored wedding dresses and especially the elite in society usually wore colored wedding dresses because it was so expensive to have the dyes that they had to, to make, to have these kind of bright colors. Um, but Queen Victoria kind of changed it and went for something that was really unusual at the time. She wore white, a white satin dress. And ever since then, society as a whole has basically changed. And we now, all of us wear white or the majority of us wear white in the Western world. On her wedding day, she says in one of her journals that she wore a white satin dress with a deep flounce of Honiton lace an imitation of an old design. My jewels were Turkish diamond necklace and earrings and dear Albert's beautiful sapphire brooch. A Turkish diamond necklace. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. This is, so mm. this is what's really amazing about Queen Victoria is that she's very detailed in her descriptions of what she wears and what she does and the presents that she receives. Her something blue is the sapphire that she wore that day, which also was something new because it was a gift that was given to her by Albert. And again, this is where I, I'm sure that the kind of marital bliss and the thought of wearing sapphires yeah. on the wedding day comes from is her wearing this brooch on, on her wedding day. We also see um, Albert throughout his life gifts beautiful pieces of jewelry to Queen Victoria. And this kind of spurs on everybody throughout the European empires to actually have more jewels. And so he, he often gets different things made for her. One of my favorite things that he has made for her is an emerald tiara and a perur, which consisted of um, diamond kind of big massive clusters that went all the way around the neck a tiara which had like the tips of it all like cabochon emeralds and also a pair of really dazzling earrings that went with the necklace now he had it made for her um, by John Kitchen and at the time it was for 1150 pounds in 1845 and this particular piece can still be seen today it's not in England I believe it's in France um, it was given to uh, pass down through her pos posterity and then there was other pieces as well that the queen today still wears so there's a like a 16 a 16 pearl brooch that Elizabeth wears today that was Queen Victoria's um, there's also a, ru a double ruby brooch that she wears. Um, and there's also a very small coronet, which can be seen in the Victorian Albert Museum, which was gifted to her by, um, by her husband. But these, these pieces and her kind of show of gravitas during this period is really, really seen throughout her whole reign, even when her husband dies in 1861 of typhoid she goes into a period of mourning and this is what actually spurs on mourning jewelry she's the one who kind of brings it to the forefront and people are wearing mourning jewelry for the same amount of time that she is she also basically brings in whitby jet so whitby jet becomes quite a um 
I used gemstone during this period and the mines in Whitby could not have been more um, thankful for her no, during this I period. Bet they were. <laughs> and then lastly, just so we can see kind of her span during this period and then many, many other periods afterwards, she had nine children. So on top of her very, very long rule, she had nine children, current monarchs, that we have that are reigning today who are um, descendants of Queen Victoria and Albert, uh, Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip. Both of them, they were cousins. So both of them um, are great, great granddaughter and great, great uh, grandson of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Um, we also have the King Harold V of Norway, who is currently reigning in Norway, King Philippe VI of Spain, King Carl Gustav of Sweden, and King Marguerite II of Denmark, which are monarchs today that are ruling their countries wow. who are still leading back to Queen Victoria. So this kind of shows you her reach throughout Europe even today. Incredible. When you're talking about the diary that you had, that gives you a real inner view into it, the thought process and maybe a level of detail that you just couldn't get by observation I'd say that's uh, I'd love to know where that is actually and uh, I'm sure it's under lock and key somewhere but yeah that's a really fascinating insight and she was such an icon and most of the royal families in Europe today have to some have some descent from her so yeah well I've picked a slightly different person a little bit like last week there's one from England and one from France uh, and the icon I'm going to look at was alive, so born in 1826 uh, and died in 1920 at the age of 94. She outdid Queenie. She did. Um, <laughs> well, she was an empress and uh, she you know, she had a lot of titles, actually. It, it is, of course, the Empress Eugenie of France, who was married to Napoleon III. She was originally born in Spain, uh, 1826, uh, in Granada, which is uh, down the south where the highest mountain in Spain is actually called the Molothen, not not too far from there. Uh, beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, she fled Spain during, there was a civil war there, the Carlos Civil War. She fled Spain to Paris. She also um, ascended to power quite young. She it, it showed the difference between the Victorian era and the Georgian era as well. She was very into sports. She was very active, like ladies in sports before then probably wouldn't have been such a huge thing. But in terms of her style and the impact that she had it was pretty huge i mean not just that her longevity but she gave a lot of people a lot of a lot of companies today actually they got their initial um i say their first big gig was with empress eugenia and for example there was a little american jeweler who was slight was so in on impressed that on a visit to france you know, he just felt totally enamored with Empress Eugenia. And, and her favorite color was a color called Natier Blue. And uh, what kind of blue is that? Well, uh, Natier Blue was the color that inspired this young American entrepreneur called John F. Young, whose business partner was a fella called Mr. Tiffany. Uh, <laughs> and the Tiffany Blue box is. So today, because of that trip to France that Mr. Young took in the Victorian period, and he saw Empress Eugenia, who always had this blue color on, and he took back that color and branded Tiffany in that color. Amazing. Mm. But what a legacy. Incredible legacy. She's I mean, an icon. She doesn't even know it. She, well, they reckon she, she had a very simple style, but uh, she was aware that everyone looked to her in terms of what she wore so even privately apparently she dressed pretty modestly but then obviously when there was court occasions and state banquets and all that kind of thing she would dress up but another person who got the first gig with her do you want to hazard a guess yeah i know gem trivia is in the next round but have first a guess. gig from got, her the first main uh the first big job that they got was it uh cartier no was they, it chomet no, Cartier is not a jeweler. Cartier oh. <laughs> did get Car, Cartier did get uh, did do a lot of work for her for sure. Yes, but the other company who got their first big break with Empress Eugenia, 
They do clothes. They're famous for bags. Chanel? No. You're in the right ballpark. <laughs> they have a shop just around the corner from us Louis here. Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton, yes. Uh, Malatier, which is uh, someone who develops luggage in French. Uh, Empress Eugenia enlisted his services to develop a range of suitcases because she used to travel with a lot of suitcases, as you would have if you were uh, a royal or in power. Oh, what and, it is to um, be Eugenia. And yeah, Louis Vuitton, and obviously today, that started with her as well. And again, that's what I love about Victorian period is you can see it yeah. coming the whole way through to today. In terms of her jewellery as well, she had an incredible collection. I've seen that she's had an auction. There was an auction of her things at Christie's, which That's included right. a pair of natural pearl and diamond earrings. They look like very substantial pearls. Um, and also a heart locket of rubies and diamonds with a, a bow motif to the top of the heart. And that contained hair from Napoleon. Yes. Well, that was uh, so romantic. It's a ruby heart. Red. Obviously, rubies are red. Yeah, they were auctioned. I don't know. I didn't actually see what they went for in the end. But a lot of her stuff obviously got sold and passed on to all of her um, her posterity. And uh, an interesting story, one of her diamonds, uh, a 40 carat diamond that was still in the family, got stolen in 2019 out of the back of a car. And then it actually ended up getting returned and it's still in the family. You know, it'd be a nice thing to inherit a 40 carat diamond. And on the style front as well, she also had the Eugenia hat. Look, I'm no expert in hats, but apparently it was the one that has, uh, has like the sides of it fold up, the brim folded up sharply on both sides. Sometimes it had like an ostrich feather at the back. Love it. And dramatically dropped over one side of uh, the eye. So Sounds that's, amazing. Uh, and that... Pirate couture. <laughs> Pirate couture. <laughs> yeah, because you said it goes over one of your eyes. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah, I don't know if it went entirely over. Arr. Yeah. What What did the pirate say on his 80th birthday? What? I'm 80. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to finish off this uh, last thing, I would say is that her jewelry was more or less bought by one person. Uh, so obviously, she passed on a lot of it, but a lot of it was sold. Uh, and a, one person acquired a huge amount of it. And that one person will be my icon in the next episode. And our final section in today's podcast is, of course, our gem trivial pursuit. In preparation for this, I did try and guess the question that Ross was going to ask. Unfortunately, I didn't. Unfortunately, I can see one of them here <laughs> that I have to ask you, So, which I'm pretty sure you're going to get. So, I just want to say that I have done no preparation for answering my questions. I like that play it down technique. Uh, I, that, I wouldn't. I wouldn't listen to any I of that. Anyway, um, Elise, I'll go first today, um, even though I think I went first last week. But uh, just to give me a target today. So Oscar Wilde was one of the most celebrated playwrights of the Victorian era, but... Can you identify his one and only novel from this quote? Nowadays, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. I can't name one Oscar Wilde book. Is that your final answer? <laughs> yeah. No. no, the book is called The Picture of Dorian Gray. And Oscar Wilde had a, a lot of interesting, very famous phrases. Oh, I didn't know that he wrote that. I've actually read that book. Another famous quote he had was, life is too short to learn German. Question two, and if you don't get this, I'd be very surprised. Oh, no pressure Posh Spice, a.k.a. Victoria Beckham, married David Beckham in Luttrellstown Castle in Dublin in 1999. But what was her maiden name before she tied the knot? Adams. Come on, Ross. That was so... I I would have thought, uh, asking you what, where she got married you probably would have got that too though i'd say i knew that she got married in ireland because i remember my one of my aunties got married in dromolin castle and oh, beautiful yeah and they they were telling her when she was getting married that victoria victoria was thinking of getting married in dromolin but they couldn't figure out like getting everybody out there to county clare so they yeah, did it in was- dublin out fairly west yeah for sure and we have done antiques fairs there as well actually uh, in both of those locations actually so um question three uh 
can you name the Canadian province that is named after Queen Victoria's and Prince Albert's fourth daughter? Regina. Said with conviction, but the answer is Alberta. Uh, named after Princess Louisa Caroline Alberta, Duchess of Argyll. So one out of three today gives me a sporting chance, but we'll see. Once My mum lives in Alberta, can I just say? Does she? Oh, God. <laughs> she does. She lives in Alberta, Calgary. Okay. Um, Kill me. I am uh, praying that Matthew knows none of these. Question one. Charles probable. Dickens... <laughs> was one of the most celebrated writers of the Victorian period. But which one of his novels begins with the famous quote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and no, it's not this trivia quiz. Pride and Prejudice? <laughs> <laughs> That's written by Jane Austen. And she's from the Georgian period. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I said... Uh, <laughs> Music and fiction, I'm not great at. Question two. All right, pull yourself together, Elise. Your mother lives there. That's all I'll say. Question two. Victoria Mary Clark is an Irish journalist and writer, but she is perhaps most famous for her long-term relationship to which legendary singer-songwriter? Is he Irish? Yes. Kind of. Kind of Irish. Uh, why are we giving all of these like additional tips and tricks? You have to say someone. <laughs> oh, because last, last time I guessed it was terrible. Who is an, a legendary singer-songwriter who is Irish? Just choose a singer-songwriter who's Irish. Bono. No. Shane McGowan. Oh, he's actually my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> Music. I'm not great on music. You might have noticed. <laughs> Question three. Victoria is the second smallest state in Australia. But which is its capital city? Victoria. Someone on Instagram Vic, 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 texted me Victoria. yesterday saying they wonder do we ship to Victoria? And they lived in Melbourne. Oh! He got it. Yes. <laughs> One all. We're yeah, drawing that, again. That was pure fluke that that actually happens. We're going to wrap it up there, folks. The Victorian period, a long period. The next periods we get into kind of Art Nouveau, Art Deco, the retro period. Edwardian. Edwardian, obviously, and that's minor one we just admitted there. But, you know, there'll be much, uh, they're much smaller periods in history. But heaps going on. But heaps going on, for sure. Um, I hope you enjoyed that today. If you're not already, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We are also on Instagram at Matthew.Weldons. Lots of live videos, quizzes, jewellery information there. Very engaging and interactive. Uh, and definitely recommend you having a look there. I'd like to thank my co-host today, Elise Ketcher. Thank you very much, Elise. Thanks, Matthew and Ross. And Ross, our producer, and I look forward to talking to you all again soon.